Um, this morning we wrap up chapter 14. We're still in the middle of this farewell discourse in John's gospel. Uh, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 14. So this is still Jesus. He's talking. Remember, if you've got a red-letter red Bible, you see a lot of red right now. Um, from chapter 14 to chapter 18, Jesus is really just, he's giving a lot of instructions because he's getting to leave. Um, and so a lot of today is just Jesus speaking to his disciples. So let's start in verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor hear, or, or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the helper, that we have someone who comforts us, who's an advocate for us, someone who defends us. So we thank you for leaving us not alone. We're not orphans this morning. We are sons and daughters. So may we be encouraged by how much you love us, how much you care for us. May we be uh, in awe of what you've done for us, that God is with us. So even though we don't deserve that, by our own merit, we, uh, we um, embrace, we are very grateful that you dwell with us. Lord, give us eyes to see you this morning. 
We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. It's important to remember that, that we're, where we are in John's gospel, we're still in the upper room. You know, we've been there for several weeks. You remember the last um, many chapters of John's gospel is just a few days. Uh, and so this chapter, we're still in the upper room. Jesus is still with his disciples. It's the night before his crucifixion. His hour is drawing near. The next several hours, we're going we're gonna to see this painful drama of the garden. You've got the arrest coming up. There's a trial. Uh, denial happens from Peter. Betrayal from the rest of the disciples. Ultimately, the cross. All of this was facing Jesus and the disciples over the next 24 hours. But here in his final hours on earth, notice what he's thinking about here. He's thinking about the disciples' well-being. You know, he's getting ready to die. Crucified on the cross, yet he's thinking about the disciples' well-being. He, he, he told them to not let your hearts be troubled. He's telling them that they're going to have this comforter, what the ESV calls this helper. Jesus is about to be taken away from his disciples in death. He would be separated from them as their closest friend. And with all of that in front of them, here in the upper room, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Have you ever lost a best friend? It's hard, right? That's what they're going through. The disciples are experiencing the loss of their best friend. If you want to learn about the Holy Spirit, the farewell discourse found here in John's Gospel needs to be a passage on your, on your um, passages to read. It's, it's, it's got to be there on your list. Um, you probably learn more about the Holy Spirit in this farewell discourse than anywhere else in all of Scripture. The Holy Spirit has been called the forgotten God because Christians will speak about God the Father. Christians speak a lot about God the Son. But we don't talk a lot about God the Spirit, do we? So it's, it's like we, we don't want to be too Pentecostal. People might think things about us. So we, we don't want to maybe go over there. But then the other side is we, we just, I think we, 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 to a fault, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives. So who or what is this Holy Spirit? Well, before we jump into John's gospel, let's just do a quick survey this morning of this Holy Spirit. Like, who, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, first, the Holy Spirit, we see from Scripture, is fully God. The God of the Bible is one. He is united in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. That's the first song we sing this morning. That creed, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. And so God is the Holy Spirit first. He's fully God. We see this, um, if you're taking notes, just wanting to kind of study up on this. In the Great Commission, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, when Jesus um, gives his Great Commission in Matthew 28, he says this. He says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's something interesting here. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but notice how the word name here is singular. That, that would make no grammatical sense. You know, there's a list here. There's a list of three names. Um, so if you were going to talk about, you know, hey, these three people saw this thing, 
you know, maybe the officers say, well, what name? Give me, their, give me their names, right? And you would list the three names. But here it's, it's name, singular. Uh, and, and so Jesus says name, which shows us that Jesus believes the Holy Spirit is one with the Father and Son. So first, the Holy Spirit is God. Next, he is a person. The Holy Spirit is not an it. And you'll hear people say that. Even people who I know love, love God, who have been churched, and, you know, disciple in Christ, sometimes you'll hear them even say it. Um, the Holy Spirit's not in it. We see this in verse 26 of this chapter, 14. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Second person, singular, masculine, He. Jesus does not say it will teach you all things, but He will teach you all things. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we don't call the Holy Spirit an it. Jesus doesn't call the Holy Spirit an it, neither should we. And right before Jesus leaves his friends, he comforts the disciples' troubled hearts by promising this gift, this gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's now look down in our passage. Um, so remember, keep in mind, Holy Spirit is fully God. Holy Spirit is not an it. Um, and let's look down to verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice the connection in verse 15. The way you grow in obedience of Jesus is to grow in your love for Jesus. Do you catch that? The more you love him, the more you will obey him. Obedience should always be rooted in love. I can remember Olivia talking about her, her dad. She loves her dad. Her dad's a godly man. When, um, when she was really young, she obeyed him because she was scared of the punishment. But as she got older, she grew, you know, her maturity, her love for her father, she she started to obey because she didn't want to hurt him. She didn't want to disappoint her father. So as she, as she grew in her love for her dad, her obedience began to grow as well. Obedience should always be rooted in love. Our obedience to the Lord should be motivated by love. And this is where legalists can struggle. And I, you know, I've got a little bit of that in me that I have to battle, legalism. I think we, we can all kind of get bent towards legalism. A legalist loves a good checklist. Where, where are my good checklist people this morning? You love checklists. I love checklists. It helps, helps me, like, I feel productive. Well, sometimes that plays over in our faith, and it can't always be good. A, a legalist can be driven to obey so that they feel better about themselves. You know, like, look what I've done for the Lord today. Like, look at me. You know, no woman... No, no wife would ever find it romantic for her husband to buy a nice gift. And when she asks, you know, why did you buy me this gift? He, he replies, well, because I'm supposed to. Is that wise? Is that what you want to hear? That's not very romantic, is it? Romantic, something driven by love, the response would be, because I know how hard you work for our family. I know that you would never buy this for yourself 
And I think you are deserving of it and so much more. That, that's what she wants to hear. That's motivated by, by love. Your obedience should be driven by a deep, loving gratitude for what he has done for us. So Jesus connects love and obedience here together. Okay, these aren't separate things. You cannot say, I love Jesus. I love him so much. And then just go live however you want. It just doesn't make sense according to Scripture. So love and obedience, they always go together. And then Jesus says something so profound. He tells his disciples that he is going to send another helper. Now, later in this passage, we see that the helper is the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit this, this helper. The Greek word translated as helper is sometimes, and maybe your translations translate it as comforter or counselor or advocate. So the idea that it suggests that the role of the Holy Spirit is someone who is he's, he's in your corner. He's fighting for you. He's there to help, to defend, to console your troubled soul. That's the Holy Spirit. That Jesus has given you this helper. The Holy Spirit, we see, he is a gift from God the Father, given at the request of Jesus the Son. So here we see all the members of the Trinity present, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together as God in three persons. And then notice here in the text that the Holy Spirit is given as another helper, meaning the disciples currently have a helper. So the Holy Spirit will come and fill the role that Jesus has been fulfilling with the disciples. He will comfort, strengthen, teach them, just as Jesus has been doing for these several years. So he is this helper. Now that word might, helper, might bring other passages to your mind. There, there's one other place in the Bible that refers to someone being a helper. Can, can you think of this? Genesis chapter 2. Twice in Genesis 2, the Lord will refer to another helper. Listen to Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now this passage can, sometimes people can get upset. It can be offensive because this is referring about a wife being a helper. But I've never heard anyone complain about the role of, a, of the Holy Spirit being subjugated by a believer. You know, that's sometimes the argument in Genesis 2 that, that oh, when you, wives being a helper, doesn't it mean like the husband is just like ruling over, like oppressing the woman? What? The Holy Spirit's called a, a helper, but I've never heard anyone saying how like a believer rules over the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard anyone accuse a believer uh, of, of suppressing the Holy Spirit, ruling over him? And it seems like the Holy Spirit has fully embraced his role as a helper. But for some reason, if a wife is called a helper, then we begin to lose our minds. It's somehow offensive today for a wife to be called the, help, the husband's helper. But it's not offensive for the Holy Spirit to be a believer's helper. See, isn't that kind of strange? So wise, by, by taking on the role of a helper, you are simply emulating Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Why would imitating God ever be offensive? 
Now, if you are offended by any of that, that doesn't sit well, please email me at bmosser at chandlers.com. So the Holy Spirit, he's called this helper. Jesus says in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. You know, if, if Jesus nor the Holy Spirit find it degrading to be called a helper, then no wife should ever find that role being degrading, but should cherish it because it allows you to be more like God. Jesus also calls the Spirit here the Spirit of truth. God's Spirit leads us into truth and is the truth. So the Spirit's ministry, in other words, is to reveal truth to us. His ministry is a ministry of instruction. It's a ministry of teaching or education. So the Spirit is our teacher. He teaches us. He leads us into truth. And not just any truth, but especially the, the truth of the gospel. That's what the Spirit does in our hearts and lives. So later on, still in the upper room, Jesus prays to the Father and prays on behalf of the disciples. And he says to his Father, Sanctify them, Father, in the truth. The Word is truth. I don't know if you see the connection here. There's a connection between the Spirit of truth and the Word of truth. And it reminds us that the Spirit always works in tandem with the Word of God. And so this is really important. Don't miss this. The Spirit never, ever, ever works contrary to the Word of God, but always in partnership with the Word of God. The Spirit helps us to understand the truth of the Bible. When you come across a passage and you don't understand it, beg the Lord to help you. You have a helper. Sometimes I'm so stubborn. You repeat that. My wife's going, amen, amen. I can be so stubborn that I just don't ask the Lord for help. He's our helper. So ask him, Lord, help me to understand this passage. And there's many ways that he can help you. He helps you by just keep reading. He'll bring the things, like, he'll, he'll bring remembrance from another passage to your mind, like, oh, yeah, you also talk about this in that passage. Or it could be just from other gifts that he's given us, things like commentaries. Um, a church family, you may need to call someone. Ask for help. The Holy Spirit wants to bring this truth to your mind. It should never be the case in our life where we might say, well, I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me into this thing, whatever it might be, when this thing or that thing is contrary to the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word of God never contradict themselves. So the Spirit works together with the truth of the Word. The Spirit will never lead you to do something that the Bible would contradict. One of the beautiful truths that we find out about the Spirit is found here at the end of verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
How glorious is that? I mean, we lose a lot of things, don't we? I mean, now we've got devices that will, you know, sync to your phone. So when you lose your keys, you can hopefully still find your keys. Lose your car. There's ways to find it. We're always losing something. If you are in Christ, you will not lose the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives you a gift which you are not able to lose. The Spirit will be with you forever, meaning you cannot lose the Spirit. This gift will not be returned or recalled. God will keep you. The presence and preservation of the Holy Spirit is one of the promises that Jesus makes to those who trust in him. This is what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul writes this. Listen to how beautiful this is. In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Notice the word of truth, promised Holy Spirit. Spirit, they're connected here. So you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How incredible is that? Notice here that in Christ, you heard the word of truth, this gospel of your salvation, believed in him, put your trust in Christ, and that moment, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. This is a picture of like an envelope, the wax seal on it. And you're, you're not allowed to open it because it's not written to you. Think of that like that little embalming on that wax seal, maybe to like to the king. And this Holy Spirit, he's, he's this promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Have, do you have the inheritance right now? In one sense, you do because you've been sealed, but in one sense, you don't, right? Because you're still here, kind of treading through this world. But you will receive the inheritance at some point. You know, this, we will acquire possession of it. So you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There are some Christians who believe that you can lose your salvation, meaning you can receive the Holy Spirit, Enjoy that relationship. But at some point, usually because of your disobedience, the Holy Spirit is taken back from you. I just want you to think about this logically. How would this even work? How many sins would it take until the Holy Spirit finally gives up on you? This is just the sins you're aware of because I, I'm sure there's sin in your life. Many of you don't even know that there's sin. So would God take the Holy Spirit from you because of sin you don't even know that you need to confess of? So how many sins would it take for God to finally just take the Holy Spirit back from you? You know, which sins is it? Is it just certain sins? You know, the, the bigger sins? Are some worse than others? Is God great on like, you know, on a scale? People who believe that you can lose your salvation in practice believe that you are saved by grace, okay, but kept by works. This type of thinking ultimately puts your salvation on your shoulders, not the shoulders of Jesus. God does the saving, 
And I believe Scripture teaches us that God does the keeping. When you are saved, you become a child of God, and that changes everything. When you have the Holy Spirit coming into your life, the Holy Spirit will begin to teach you how to be obedient. Notice this passage is a lot about obeying, loving. Holy Spirit gives you a deeper love for God as you have this deeper love. You begin to, to want to obey. I can remember, and this is going to be harder for some of you who grew up like in church, as far back as you remember, you've always been in church. For me, it's not the case. Um, many of you know my story. I became a Christian in college. Um, so for years, I did whatever I thought I, you know, what I wanted to do. I, I was a slave to my own sin. But when Christ saved me, um, he gave me like this new mind, a new heart, these new desires. I used to hate the Bible. Why would I want to read the Bible? It was boring. It was silly. It was stupid. Christ saves me. Like, this is the greatest book ever. I used to skip class to play video games. How dumb is that? Christ saved me. I, I couldn't put my Bible down. I would skip class just to read the Bible. I don't encourage that, but I, I just, like, this book's amazing. Something happened. The Holy Spirit was changing me from the inside out. That's what's going on here. Look down at verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's beautiful. Just as Christ is in the Father, that's pretty special, right? It's a beautiful relationship between Christ and the Father, Jesus says, you and me and I and you. Just as Jesus is in the Father, he has that relationship with you. That's, that's amazing. These verses, 18 through 20, show this relationship. We're not orphans. We're sons and daughters. And Jesus is the son, so are we children of God. This means that Jesus will not leave us um, as orphans, alone, without protection, without care, he will come to us. One of the sweet truths of the gospel is that the Christian is never alone. If you are in Christ, then you never have a moment left to yourself. God is with those who believe by his spirit. I, I love this church. I love uh, just thinking about who's out here today. For some of you, this idea of adoption is a bit more tangible than for others of us, right? Several of you have either been adopted or have adopted or in the process of adoption. And for those of you who have gone through this process of like fostering to adopt, I mean, I, I, just, I just hear like how fragile that situation is, right? There's zero security in that moment. Like, like you're a nervous mess. Because, you know, any moment that, that child can be taken away from you and put back in, you know, some other situation. But for those of you who've gone through that process and then have the adoption finalized, I, I cannot imagine, like, how a passage like this would resonate with you and that all like on that day of the adoption. 
Like you're going, and I don't know if it's at a courthouse or some, some, you know, it could be at a law office. I'm not sure how it all works out, but there's no legal security going there. This is not my child. But then you sign some papers, and in an instant, this is now my child. These are now my parents. There's legal rights. How beautiful is that? You, you gain a sense of security. No one is taking that child from me now. He or she is mine. And think of the security for that child. Like, I have, you're, you're my mom. No, no one's coming in and taking you from me. There's such security found in adoption. Listen to Paul talk about adoption in Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3. Listen to all the blessings all the things that Jesus is declaring upon you, all these um, advantages that we receive by being adopted. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now listen to this. In love... He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. Now listen to all these, like these declarations he's making, these definitive statements. In him we have redemption. So you've been redeemed. How? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. So we've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight. So we've been redeemed. We've been, we've been blessed. We've been forgiven. We've been lavished upon with riches making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. So you have an inheritance now, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Adoption is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. You have all these things now. If we're to read chapter 2, you had none of those things. You were dead in your trespasses. But Christ, this great love with which he loved us, raised us, seated us with him in the heavenly places. Not because he's obligated but because he loved you, he wanted you, sons and daughters. Now think about this. Who adopts whom? It's the parents, right? I mean, the parents adopts the, the child. It's not the other way around. The orphan does not go around instructing parents to adopt them. You know, adoption is an act of grace from the parents to the children being involved. And I love, like, thinking about adoption. I'm always amazed at how the adoption, kids usually have zero DNA with the parents. 
But it's, it's amazing to see how often those adopted kids begin to act like the parents, don't they? They, they begin to take on the attributes of the parents. Olivia and I both, on both sides of our family, we, we have members of our family who have adopted children in. Um, we've seen the beauty of that adoption. What's been amazing is how those kids who from different backgrounds begin to act like our families. And, and I think this naturally happens with adoption. Um, you begin to act like and emulate your parents. And I wonder if that's why adoption and behavior, our actions here, are side by side in this passage. We, we saw this back in verse 15. Now we see it again in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So here again, love, obedience, connected. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, we'll make our home with him. Whoever does not love, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So now we've come to the point in history where if you're named Judas, you begin to disassociate yourself from a certain Judas, right? From here on out, if your name is Judas, every time you introduce yourself, you have to qualify by saying, oh, but not as scary. Just want to clarify that. I'm, I'm not that Judas. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Jesus is not saying that we are saved by our own good works. What he is saying is a real Christian will show his or her love by being obedient to God. And that such a life of obedience is the life which enjoys the experience of God's love and grows in knowledge of Christ. See, the, the, the more you obey Christ, the more you enjoy Christ. And this is where also the Holy Spirit comes into this equation to make this relationship between man and God even possible. I mean, think about it. If our relationship with God is connected to how well we obey him, this is ultimately not the best news for us, is it? Is, is that how you want your relationship to be? Like, well, if I obey, if I obey God, then I'll have a good relationship with him. It, it's... it's Thankfully, the Holy Spirit's role to help you be obedient. Your obedience is not left up to yourself. In a few weeks, we'll get to this passage, but it comes from this exact same setting, same conversation. A couple of chapters later in John 16, they're still kind of talking. This instructions are being given. And Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 8, And when he comes, he, the, the helper, uh, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to reveal sin, disobedience in our lives so that we can repent and conform to the image of Christ, that we can imitate our Father. Have you ever done something wrong and you just feel like this heavy weight upon you? You feel like this guilt and shame? And that's part of the role of the Holy Spirit in your life as a Christian. He is there to say, hey, 
that is not how you as a son or daughter should act. Your father's really disappointed in you right now. So Jesus, he continues in verse 25. He says, those things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So let me clarify here. When Jesus says that the helper will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you, Jesus does not mean that the Holy Spirit is going to teach you physics or how to work your remote or how to hit a curveball. What Jesus is promising here is the special work of the Spirit to inspire the apostles to write the New Testament. The New Testament was written by men who had seen the resurrected Christ. One of these men who is in this room right now with Jesus um, listening is the Apostle Peter. Peter goes on to write. He comments on this miracle found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Peter writes this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening. So connecting John 14, 2 Peter 1, verse 21, Peter's saying, the Holy Spirit carried him along to help him to write 2 Peter. The rest of the New Testament was written by men and carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit played a major role in the development of Scripture. The words that you have right now that you're reading from, from your Bible, they're, they're there because the Holy Spirit directed men to pen those very words. Isn't that amazing? That every word you have there, the Holy Spirit guided men to write those things. Not only does God give us His very word, He he also promises something that we could never earn. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is leaving peace with God for his followers, but not as the world gives peace. So the world, when you think about the world and peace, typically the world experiences peace only through the violence towards others. And usually after much blood has been shed. But Christ offers peace by violence done to him. His blood is shed on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin so that peace can be extended to the Father to you. And you can now have peace with God. This wrath between God and man has been satisfied by the shedding of Christ's blood. This is what Jesus is referring to in verse 28 when he says, You heard me say to you, I'm going away. So this going away that he's talking about is a reference to the cross. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm going away. I'm leaving. Then he says, I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. 
Notice there's a connection. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do as the Father told me so that they may know that I love the Father. Love and obedience. Jesus is modeling that. There are some here that get caught up on that statement, the Father's greater than I. You know, how can you have this trinity, this one God, three persons? But Jesus says that the Father's greater than I. Wouldn't that make them not equal? How can Jesus and the Father be equal, yet Jesus say that the Father's greater? Well, I, I think in order to understand this phrase, we need to remember the context, this time that Jesus is writing. His present position on earth was less than the Father's glorified position in heaven. So by default, when Jesus descended to earth, he accepted an inferior position. Okay, we see that in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus descends, he humbles himself, even to the point of death. But this idea of submission, our, our culture just struggles. Like we, we have a hard time grasping that submission does not make someone like less valuable. So we, we think like whoever's in charge, like they're the most important. That's not always the case. You can be fully equal with someone and still submit to them. Submission is about a role, not about value and worth. Then Jesus, again, he points his disciples to the cross. He says that he will no longer talk much with them, for the ruler of this world is coming. So Jesus, a few weeks ago, used the same phrase about this rule of the world, referring to, to Satan. So the cross here... It, it, in, in the same light as both the greatest good and the greatest evil. You know, what could be more evil than killing this innocent God-man? And in that moment, it looks like the devil appears to be victorious. But at the same time, the cross is the greatest good. What could be better than God dying to save sinners from their sins? So while this prince of the world is coming, we see that the prince... This world has no hold on Jesus. And Jesus would ultimately do what he set out to do. He would die for the sins of the world. Now, as I think about the truths we learned this morning about the Holy Spirit, I just think about Peter. I kind of like isolate him from the others. And it gives me so much encouragement. You remember back in chapter 13... This is when they first got to the upper room. This is when Judas betrays Jesus. When he leaves to go betray him, Jesus said, someone in this room is going to betray me. Right after that, Peter tells Jesus, he says, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And then Jesus tells Peter that, well, you will, but you're going to deny me three times first. Peter's like, there's no way, no way, no way, no way. And we're going to see in a few weeks that Jesus was right, Peter was wrong. Peter would deny Jesus three times. Bold and brave Peter would be turned into a coward. So I think about Peter in that moment, denying Jesus, how, how weak he was in that moment. But then you fast forward a few months. Jesus now, he's raised from the dead. He ascends back to heaven. And Peter's now preaching boldly to the crowds in Jerusalem. 
This is clearly not the same Peter. So, so what changed? I mean, he's preaching. They, they, they want to kill him. See, after the resurrection, Jesus promises Peter and the rest of the disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and Peter becomes a different man. Power fell upon Peter, and he spoke, and he lived like a different man. This is the power of the Holy Spirit in Peter. And that's what the power of the Holy Spirit can do to any man, any woman, any boy, any girl. When was the last time you undeniably saw the Spirit at work in or around your life? If you cannot recall the Holy Spirit at work in your life, let me give you three areas for you to examine this morning. Number one, comfort. I'm preaching to myself right now. Why in the world would you need the comforter if your life is always about comfort? Some of you want to be your own comforter, so you've created this, this little safe bubble, this little world. You don't take risks. Everything is safe. Why in the world would you need the comforter? I think this is one of the reasons why the church in America, we, we've kind of moved towards like program-driven ministries. If you think about it, which situation are you more likely in need of a comforter? Coming to another Bible study, another small group, or some church meeting, gathering, or having a conversation about the gospel with your neighbor or your coworker? It's intimidating, isn't it? We don't... We don't like, we get so nervous. That's a good thing, because then guess what happens? The comforter steps in, and he carries you along. Do it. Share the gospel. Share the good news. Be bold. Don't cower away. I'm your advocate. I'm in your corner. So maybe some of you need to examine comfort, that you've kind of structured your whole day around being comfortable, and you just don't allow the Holy Spirit to work because you don't need him to. Everything's safe. Some of us need to take more risks, to be more bold, to open up our mouth. Number two, volume. Is your life filled with a bunch of noise? Maybe things are just too loud in your life. So loud you can't even hear the Holy Spirit even if he's screaming at you. You're just too busy. You need to slow down to look to see how God might be at work in your life. You need to get rid of some of the things on your calendar. Guard it. Number three. Maybe you've never received the Holy Spirit to begin with. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
this morning, if God seems distant, if this week you felt like Jesus didn't seem very personally connected to you, maybe the Bible doesn't seem to be speaking to you, it's worth just stopping right now, inspecting your life, examining yourself to see whether there's some area of disobedience that you need to bring in line with God's word. Remember, a love for God leads to obedience to God. And obedience to God leads to the experience of the love of God. So let's, let's just stop. Let's take some time right now and let's just examine our hearts. Examine your heart to see how the Holy Spirit is playing a role in your life. Maybe he's not. If that's you, if you've never received the Holy Spirit, pray that. Peter says, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you've never prayed, if you've never asked for forgiveness, repent right now, which means turn away from your life, begin to follow the ways of God. You will receive forgiveness. You will receive the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you do great things for God. So let's just pray right now. Just ask God to examine, to expose areas in your life. Maybe it's just a life of comfort, a life of volume, or maybe you just don't have the Holy Spirit at all. So let's, let's pray. God, this morning, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit's been at work in our lives. That you've spoken to us. That you have revealed things to us. Lord, I pray that we would listen to you right now. Why are we so disconnected? Why don't we experience the love that we once felt? Lord, show us Shows where we're being disobedient, how we're maybe just busy, maybe we're just seeking after comfort, where we're not even allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. We want to see others come to know Christ. So show us where we need to just uh, conform to you. Or maybe even through the next couple songs, you bring to mind just things in our lives. You just reveal things to us as we sing, as we sing the words of Scripture. May you just uh, expose sin, or may we may we be obedient to you because we love you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.